The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Amen. Let me pray for us. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to come and see what you have done. Apply Christ deep to our hearts. Take this chapter, Lord. Speak deeply to the recesses of our souls where we want to pull away and hide. Pray that we would come into the light. Ask that you would have your way among us. Ask for this word not to return void, but to yield great fruit in our lives that would please you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at Genesis chapter three and third chapter into the Bible. So if you'd like to follow along, I'm actually not gonna read the chapter. I'm gonna kinda go through the chapter as we go. Before we look at Genesis three, I wanna share a Calvin and Hobbes with you. So this is from the 90s, and this is Calvin telling Hobbes, nothing I do is my fault. My family's dysfunctional. My parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive functioning and a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness because I'll accept, before I accept any responsibility for my actions. Hobbes says, well, then one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. And Calvin says, I love the culture of victimhood. Well, that was in the 90s. And I think this culture of victimhood uh, is alive and well today. I would say it's worse. Will Rogers once remarked that there are two eras in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. And I just recently finished um, this book called Gay Girl, Good God, which I highly recommend by Jackie Hill Perry. Some of you guys may be familiar with her. I meant to bring the book up here and hold it up, but uh, it's her story. And she's sharing honestly of how God um, led her out of a lesbian lifestyle and led her into the arms of Jesus and saved her. And if anyone could have played the victim card, it it would have been her. And she has this amazing footnote on page 37. At the bottom of page 37, she says, it is important to note that sexual abuse is not what made me gay, nor did fatherlessness. They only exaggerated and helped direct the path for what was already there, which is sin. Parentheses, Psalm 51.5, Romans 1.26 and 27, and James 1.15. You see, she owned up to her sin as God wooed her to himself. How about you this morning? Is somebody to blame who's more responsible for your sin than you? You see, Adam and Eve both played the blame game. And the victimhood card didn't work for them. Yet in the midst of their shame and profound alienation, loneliness, an eviction from Eden. God does some amazing things in this chapter. 
that should give us hope that mercy triumphs over judgment for those who believe in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So let's give attention to God's word. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now I'm not sure how the devil is speaking through the serpent or where the devil, how, when the devil fell from heaven. We are just simply told here that the serpent was more crafty, cunning, and shrewd than the rest of the animals that God had made. This is the first conversation in the history of the world about God. And it begins with, did God actually say? You shall not eat of any, any tree in the garden. The creature calls into question the creator in his very first conversation about his maker. The serpent knows where he's going with this. This is step one of seduction and temptation. You don't start out with an outright lie. You start by sowing doubt that God might not be so wise and good and looking after what's best for you. Verse 2, And the serpent said to the woman, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The woman's reply, Eve's reply, is quite interesting because she goes beyond what God has said and put a fence inside the fence and includes a statement, neither shall you touch it. And say, some have commented that legalism was born here. Eve is going beyond what God's word for her holiness. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the next temptation. You will not surely die. The very first lie in the history of the world is a denial of judgment. The very first lie in the history of the world is a denial of judgment. That there's no hell. When I die, that's it. I just disappear. Nothing has changed. Sin always presents the bait and hides the hook. It's the sugar-coated poison capsule, as Piper calls it, John Piper. There are no consequences, no judgment, no hell, no death. The temptation goes on. The tree has something now that you currently don't have. Eating of this tree will make you smarter, wiser, and you'll be on an even playing field with the Creator Himself. He doesn't want you to be like Him. You see, he's holding out on you. He's not being good of you. He's afraid of you. He's trying to control you. You're actually missing something. Your life is not complete, and your identity is not going to be your identity until you have this fruit. Some of you may remember the Truman Show movie, which was in the 90s. Jim Carrey played the role of Truman, and he's being manipulated by Kristoff, who created this reality world for Truman to live in. And millions of viewers are watching Truman, who doesn't know he's in a world where everything is fake. The sky is fake. The town is fake. All the neighbors are actors. Everything is fake. Everybody's just playing their part. And the joke is on you, but you don't know it. And everybody's piping in to watch it. And so as Truman begins to figure it out, as the movie is making its way through. And finally, when he figures it out, 
He doesn't want any part of this world that's been created for him. He wants his autonomy, and he rides out on this boat, and Kristoff's sending the storm, and he's trying, and he rides to the end of the set, and the boat crashes through the set, if you remember. And Kristoff, you know, has to break character and speaks down to him and pleads with him not to leave the world as he's tried to be good to him. But inwardly, you can't wait for Truman to get out from under the thumb of Kristoff. And you see, Kristoff is obviously a reference to Christ. And the idea is that this is a twisted world that God has created. And it's just like the lie of the devil. You need to get out from under the thumb of God and get on your own. And so the Truman Show is really a original sin type of weaving of a story that basically God isn't good. This isn't paradise. If you can't have this one tree, you're missing out. You need to leave God's words behind as the enemy is saying, just trust me on this one. Have I got a deal for you? And it's interesting how Eve, as Sinclair Ferguson in his sermon on this, he says she becomes like the elder brother. You never even gave me a young goat to make merry with my friends. You never gave me the one tree to share with my husband. So she's got to have it. And so verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Here we have the essence of We're looking at temptation, and now we're moving towards sin and its consequences. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his little book, Temptation, he says this about temptation. He says, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. Makes no difference whether it's sexual desire, ambition, or vanity, desire for revenge, or love of fame, power, or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At that moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan doesn't fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of of man in deepest darkness, and the powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us, It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Isn't that how temptation works? Jackie Hill Perry in her book that I referenced earlier, Gay Girl, Good God, the story of who I was and who God has always been. She says this, the deception, referring to Eve, was in believing that the tree was more satisfying to the body and more pleasurable to the sight than God. The root of all sin is unbelief in God. The fall began when Adam and Eve doubted what God had said about himself. It is the identity that we we ascribe to God out of doubt or faith in his scriptures that will undermine the identity we will give ourselves and ultimately the life we will inevitably live. If he's a creator, then we're created. If he's master, then we are servants. If he is love, then we are loved. If he's omnipotent, we're not as powerful as we think we are. And if he's omniscient, then there's nowhere to hide. And if he cannot lie, then his promises are all true. It is faith in the truth of God's character that has the power to completely revolutionize 
how our lives are to be lived out. But Eve was deceived. She worshipped a tree, a fruit, and she places her identity and her loyalty into forbidden fruit. And she gives to Adam, and he eats. And that was the loudest, scariest sound that ever entered the universe, was the eating of that fruit. And nothing is even mentioned about Adam's cognitive wrestling with this fruit. It just looks good, honey. Thanks. He should have squashed the serpent on his head for trying to get to his wife, going back door, ignoring the head. And he listened to the lies, watched the rebellion, the mutiny, the cue, the coup as it was being sown. But it'll take another Adam, a second Adam to do that. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together They made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's a lot here for us to consider. Adam and Eve, you remember, were naked and unashamed at the end of Genesis 2. They're one flesh. But now sin has entered the picture And what Tim Keller describes is a self-quake. You know, you got an earthquake. Well, a self-quake is when your self starts to disintegrate. And everything is coming apart. And as you go through this chapter, all of psychology, all of psychology, all of anthropology, all of your different fields, they all go back to Genesis 3. You got to go here. Because this has a lot to say about psychology, doesn't it? A lot about sociology, a lot about anthropology, because everything's going to ripple. It, has, it starts vertically, and it just ripples out across everything horizontally. And they're no longer looking at themselves in innocence, but now they need clothes. And there's an alienation even within themselves of shame. And God's voice and presence before was the desire of their hearts, and now he comes near And they hear him coming. And the first thing they do is they went and hid themselves from God. They innately knew now, we're in big trouble. Sound familiar? That's absolutely universal human experience. We've been running from God ever since. Who does all the pursuing in this chapter? Who does all the pursuing in the Bible? God. God loves his people and he comes pursuing us. But this sin hasn't just affected Adam and Eve. The Bible makes it clear in the New Testament, Romans 5, 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We sinned in him and with him in his first transgression, as the catechism says. Adam and Eve are experiencing the fracture of the fall. And now this sin produces a profound alienation. And the Bible says our iniquities separate us from God, and it's true. But it also separates from everything. We're separated from ourselves. We're separated from one another. We're separated in psychological ways and sociological ways, and it just ripples out. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And keep in mind, these, all these yous here in verses 9 and verse 11 are singular in Hebrew. God is singularly coming to Adam. Where are you, Adam? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you, singular, Adam, that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Last week, we noticed that God comes with questions. And he said to Abel, you remember Cain and Abel said to Cain, three questions. Why are you angry? Where's your brother Abel? What have you done? Well, here we got three, more, three questions. Where are you? Where are you, Adam? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God comes to the head of the home. He holds the man responsible. Not that Eve will not experience a judgment in this chapter, but note that God first deals with Adam and addresses Adam. Verses 9 to 12 is solely a dialogue with Adam. Adam doesn't come clean. He doesn't reject passivity and accept responsibility. No, he does just the opposite. He says, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave to me and I ate. That woman you put with me, she's dangerous. That woman, she's dangerous. It's your fault, God. What are you doing bringing her into my life? It was you and it was her. In reality, it's your fault, God. What's so shocking about these words is the end of chapter 2, when God first brought Eve to Adam, he, he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I mean, he is in love with this woman. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He was in paradise. Well, now he's paradise lost. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Some of you guys that like to study theology Maybe you've heard this big word, proto-euangelion. The idea is first gospel. This is a profound word of good news. And as Sinclair Ferguson, his excellent sermon on Genesis 3, he says the rest of the Bible is just a footnote on Genesis 3.15. The rest of the Bible is just a footnote on Genesis 3.15. God makes a promise here. Now think about this. You got to look at the pronouns. I love how Luther used to say the gospels and the personal pronouns. Look at the pronouns here because the pronouns are a big tip off that in 315 we're told something significant. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. We're going to have a war. We have a godly seed, we have an elect seed, and we have a reprobate seed. We have Cain and we have Abel. And then you get to the end, Genesis chapter 4, and you keep reading through it. And then from Cain comes Lamech, who is rejoicing that you think Cain can do some killing. I'll, I'll do sevenfold. 
And he's just glorying and killing. And you have this ungodly seed that's starting to trace itself out in Genesis. Right in the midst of that, you got Seth. And the godly line is being, is, is being uh, sown. And so we have these two seeds that are at war with one another. And we see it in Genesis 4 where Cain rises up and kills Abel. So we have these, these offspring. And that's, that's more on the, the, the plural, the collective. But then we've got something singular. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's not referring to offsprings. That's not plural, as Galatians 3.16 makes very clear to us as Paul's looking at this passage saying, that's the Messiah. There's a singular pronoun. John Collins, in his little book on Genesis 1-4, to he's a very good scholar, Covenant Seminary. He says, I've argued elsewhere that in biblical Hebrew, the key signal for a singular or collective offspring is, this is kind of techy or technical, but listen carefully. The key signal for a singular or collective offspring is the grammatical number of the pronouns that refer to the word. If the author had a specific offspring in view, he would have used singular pronouns. And if he meant posterity in general, he would have used plural pronouns. In this text, we have two singular pronouns that refer to the woman's offspring. He shall bruise his heel. Thus, we are entitled to join the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew, in seeing an individual as the referent here. And the idea is that both the Septuagint, which is looking before Christ, 250 years, it's taking it as singular, as a messianic verse, and so is the Hebrew. And so we see a reference to the first pointing of the gospel, that a Messiah is going to come from the seed of the woman, and someone's going to come from the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. Now, now if I were to give a pop quiz this morning, and you had to fill in the blank... The reason the Son of a God appeared was to fill in the blank. What's the answer? The reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, how does he do that? Well, back up three verses. You know that he appeared to take away sins... And in him, in Jesus, there is no sin. So when Jesus takes away sins at the cross, he takes away the arrows from the devil. He no longer has any weapons to shoot at us now. No accusations will stand because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I like how the message, which was translated by Eugene Peterson, who recently went home to be with Jesus, he says this about Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He says, when you're stuck in your old sin-dead life, you are incapable of responding to God. But God brought you alive, right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, and the old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Jesus was bruised. There's a war that's going to happen. And Jesus is going to suffer. And so are his people that are united to him. They're going to suffer too. George Herbert, great poet from the 1600s, has a classic poem called The Sacrifice. And the refrain that goes on for several pages 
after every four lines is, was ever grief like mine? And one of the measures says, O all ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me, meaning to all but me. Of all who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, first Adam, but I must climb the tree, second Adam. He climbed the tree to pay for the sins of the one who stole from the tree. Was ever grief like mine? There's a great promise here of what God is going to do. And to the woman, he said, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called the, the wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now we're told three things will now be exceedingly difficult as judgment is brought on Adam and Eve for their sin. We are told that childbearing, having children, twice we are told it will be painful, as ladies can testify. Next, marriage will be a struggle. We easily get this when it comes to work. We say, oh, work has been cursed now, and we were made to work in the garden, and work was good, and now it's, now it's going to be exceedingly difficult. So is marriage. We're promised. <laughs> marriage is going to be really difficult. This would be a great passage to do as a, as a, for a homily of a couple getting married. <laughs> your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, you know? Who wants to hear that as, you know, you're going down the aisle? Okay, let's give him the benediction, you know? But it's true you see, Victor Hamilton, who has a great commentary on Genesis, he put it like this. The desire of the woman for her husband is akin to the desire of sin that lies poised, that lies poised ready to leap at Cain. So if you look at 3.16 and then look over at Genesis 4.7, you have the same words that are being used over in 4.7 as 3.16. Your desire will be for your husband. Sin's desire is for you and you must rule over it. And so here it's saying your desire will be for your husband. He's going to rule over you. And so he says it means a desire to break the relationship of equality. And they're both going to struggle to turn it into a relationship of servitude and domination. The sinful husband will try to be a tyrant over his wife. Far from being a reign of co-equals over the remainder of God's creation, the relationship now becomes a fierce dispute with each party trying to rule the other. And so not only will childbearing and marriage be difficult, but so will work. Note the repetition on the word eat. Three times it makes references to eat. Because you ate of it, he's saying now, now basically eating is going to be difficult. And that's where we get the idea of works being difficult because we work so that we can eat. But three times it says eating here. And the idea is that nobody gets a gravy job. Even, even the gravy jobs are plagued with challenges and difficulties. And if you really get the gravy job, it's probably not going to pay very well. Because 
Everything has been, is the ripple effects of the, of the fall have worked themselves out. It's going to affect all these areas. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What do we see here? God in his mercy clothed Adam and Eve with garments of skin. You see, they they were trying to cover themselves. And we've been trying to cover ever since and you know Bruce Springsfield was is looking for a lover who who will cover me how's that going for you Bruce he's been trying for a long time we try to cover ourselves and God's the one here making the the covering for them as a foreshadowing of the shedding of blood to cover us from our sin we see a hint of God's mercy and his love in verse 22 but then in verse 22 God breaks off mid-sentence I love how the the ESV just stops it with a dash at the end of verse 22. And the idea is that this is unfathomable. You know, God is saying, what what if Adam eats of the tree of life in a fallen state? He would remain forever in a sinful state. We can't have that. And so God in his mercy banishes Adam and Eve out of the garden in Eden and places the cherubim and a flaming sword to protect the way to the tree of life. Now, any good story begs you to look to see, well, what, what is the significance of this? Where's this going? And if you're like me, you like to read the end of the story. You'd like to look back at the very end and just, what's going to happen, you know? Well... How do Adam and Eve get back to walking with God in the cool of the day? How do they get back to the tree of life? God has to deal with sin, and he has to root out sin. How is he going to do that? How is he going to get rid of sin so that they can come back in? You see, there's an echo of hope here that's just beginning to reverberate, and the minor chords of this symphony are going to someday break out into the hallelujah chorus. But the end of the story, if you look to the end, is Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, and we're told, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Did you catch the pronoun? They will reign forever and ever. God's bringing his people back to the garden. The garden is going to be coming back here in the new heavens, new earth, when heaven comes down. And so this little reflection quote that you just casually may have read over this morning, it said, 
She took and ate. She took and ate, Eve. So simple the fact, so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. And we get to come and take and eat of something better than what Adam and Eve thought they were getting out of this forbidden fruit. We come to the real fruit this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, this story is all about you and you pursuing us and us trying to run away. And you are much faster, much wiser, and much more omnipotent. Where grace, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So we worship you. We surrender. We declare Dependence Day afresh, that we are utterly dependent on you. We thank you for the privilege now to come and eat. We thank you for Jesus who climbed the tree for us. It's in his name. Amen.